Welcome to the Weekly Juice Podcast, where we discuss all things real estate, personal finance, investing, entrepreneurship, and the many ways to achieve financial independence. We interview accomplished investors and entrepreneurs with the goal that their stories inspire you to take control of your financial future. Here to get your creative juices flowing while also documenting their own personal investing journeys are your hosts, Corey Jacobson and Ryan Bevilacqua. Welcome back to the Weekly Juice. As always, it's your boys, Ryan and Corey here with another episode for you. Today, we interviewed James Daynard. He is the host of the On The Market Show at Bigger Pockets. He is a real estate investor and businessman who has ample experience in uh, long-term rentals, wholesaling, new development, uh, flipping. He's done pretty much everything you can imagine on the real estate side. He's based out of Washington State. Um, he touched briefly on this, but he used to be a uh, server at um, Red, Robin. Red Robin. Yeah, and now he's just this. Uh, I, w- I wouldn't. I don't. Three dollar tips to three thousand flips. That's like his thing. Yeah. But the thing about James is that he he we don't interview that many people that started like all the way back in two thousand eight. So he's been doing this for fifteen plus years. He bought his first piece of land at seventeen. He bought his I think his first rental property at twenty three or not rental property. He did his first wholesale deal, and he talks about in the episode he did a. Two, he made two million dollars worth of profit, over two million dollars worth of profit on flip. So that he found on the market. All yeah, on the exactly. So then he's he's like, oh okay, like I I started this business, this wholesaling business. I then I turned it into a wholesaling, and then I started flipping. Then I started lending. Then I started a property management business. Then I buy and hold. Like he he turned one business into eight businesses, and now he's just like absolutely rolling, and he's making. A ton of money but he just loves the grind still and that was one of the cool things he took from the episode he's like yeah i still work like a dog because he's so good at it and he started before all the social media and all the gurus and he's just addicted to the deal that's what his like thing was that he talked about in the episode he loves the deal yeah he does um what i really liked about one of our my favorite segments of the show is when we really got into partnerships and he talked about like the different styles and types of entrepreneurs and how he and his partner divvied up their businesses. Like James has the lane of four businesses and his partner covers the other four and they trust each other to do it. And they've built their relationship off of, you know, the core aspect. Like the one thing that never wavers is their friendship and like looking out for each other. And they know that, you know, sometimes one will take over, well, in the beginning or as they were navigating the landscape, like one maybe ran a business, didn't do the best job. The other guy took it over. And so they found ways to find synergy within all their businesses. And right, it was when they were lacking or they needed something in one field, they studied it, learned it, and implemented it into their, into their I guess, scheme of all businesses. So now they really do everything on the, uh, on the real estate front and do it in-house, which is awesome. Yeah. Another cool thing about James is that people don't realize this, but like everyone's like, well, Seattle, San Francisco, New York, like you can't invest there. Like this guy's built this $1,000-unit $1, portfolio all in his backyard. Like he's still, even today, he does some JVs and some funding and stuff outside of there, but all a thousand units are in the Seattle, Washington metro area with suburbs. Like, and everyone thinks that, oh, Seattle, you can't invest there. It's too expensive. So now part of that's he got in like years ago, but another thing is now he just knows that market. So for people that are listening, you can invest in your backyard. You can build that up where you know it. And he just learned what to do on the ground. And now he said he used to buy a lot of off-market deals. Now he buys everything on market because people think you can't. So he's kind of like navigating the the waters where everyone runs from. What, great dude. 
well, hopefully we can stay in touch with him and he's he's kind of getting big time now but i think you're really gonna like the episode we should bring him in yeah let's bring him in when you have investment properties and tenants you need a good system in place for collecting rent to make it easy as possible and rent ready can help you with everything when you sign up for rent ready you can start adding your properties inviting tenants and creating charges you can even set up automatic rent reminders and create auto late fees as well for tenants they can pay via ach card or even cash using rent ready's web and mobile apps they can also use an automatic payment setup and sign up for rent reporting so they get rewarded for paying rent on time. RentReady saves you time and hassle by automating rent collection, and you can manage everything from one dashboard. For our Weekly Juice listeners, RentReady has given us a special 50% off for any RentReady plan using our code WEEKLYJUICE at RentReady.com. That's R-E-N-T-R-E-D-I.com using the code WEEKLYJUICE. That's W-E-E-K-L-Y-J-U-I-C-E to save 50% off any RentReady plan. James, officially welcome to the show. Corey and I are so excited to have you on, man. I mentioned to you pre-recording, we've done a lot of homework on you, but also just been following you over the years. You have an incredible story of real estate and honestly just becoming a business person. So we're super excited to interview you and uh, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. It, well, I was, we just had a blast for the last 15 minutes chopping it up. So yeah, yeah this is going to be a fun show. Yeah, I can't wait. It's funny. We, we found out we have uh, some connections locally um, right up the road that, you know, BP connections. And then also, uh, who knows, you might be visiting us in uh, December, maybe an NFL game. That'd be kind of fun. Yeah, go, so, go Hawks. Yeah, yeah, I don't know about that, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's start here. I, typically, everybody always starts with like, how'd you get into real estate? But let's take us before real estate. I want to go to like who you are and like where you came from and then eventually how you got into real estate, why you decided that would be your lane. Yeah. Um, so I, I've come from, uh, originally born and raised in Washington state. Um, I actually grew up in a city called Sammamish, Washington, which is actually a big suburb now, very expensive, uh, kind of grew up. But when I was there, it was mostly woods and it was just being developed at that time. Um, but growing up, I was always kind of the guy that would go to school, work full time. And, you know, I was always kind of an entrepreneur in general. Um, you know, I think I, I started, I mean, I was working, I was working since 12 years old, either working in a warehouse, doing something or, or kind of keep moving forward. Um, you know, and as I grew up, I saw a lot of my parents were in real estate, they would buy and sell properties. And, you know, I was a little bit of a saver. And so that's how originally how I got in real estate was just kind of working odds and end jobs as, as a kid. And by the time I was getting close to graduating high school, I had saved up about 20 grand and I bought my first piece of land. Um, because there was lots being sold on a river in, in Washington state called Columbia. It, it is in, on the Columbia river and kind of the Lake Chelan area, which is, you know, a lot, I definitely should have kept, but you know, I bought it for uh, 17 grand. And then I, I think I sold it six months later for 25 and I made like five grand, which was a huge return on my money at that point. And at, at 17 years old, I kind of, the light started turning on that. Hey, if you buy assets and you sell things, uh, you can make some money. And, um, that, that kind of stayed with me for life at that point. Um, and then I eventually got back into real estate full-time, uh, when I was in college, my senior year, I started kind of getting after it in real estate. And I originally took the job in, in real estate just for sales training, not even for a real estate job. And then it kind of took off from there. Yeah. No, I know that you, one of your biggest, like the way that you started was flipping, right? So it's funny that Every flipper we talk to is always saying, man, if I would have kept a few more of these rentals, like I'd be on an island somewhere or something like that. I'm curious, what was it about flipping? It sounds like a, a big gen, uh, 
generator of cash, right? And maybe at yep. 23, that was super exciting to you. Can you talk about the the start, the uh, the beginning of your flipping career and how that came to be? Yeah, actually, and I started with wholesaling originally. And in, in, in how I kind of got in the business was uh, my business partner today um, was selling cars, and he sold a car to somebody that owned a large investment company, and they, they buy properties at the auction. They were buying like 40, 50 properties a month down there. And then they had an off-market real estate team where they would give you leads. You go knock on the door, negotiate the contract. They would buy it. You get paid a wholesale fee. Uh, but you had a built-in buyer at that time. And so I originally took the job because he had just started in the industry. And I was like, well, you know what? I'm a senior in college. I want to learn my, my kind of sales skills. Um, I was originally trying to get into medical device sales. I was like, that's where I want to be when I get done with college. And I took this job just because of door-to-door sales. Nothing better than learning sales than getting the door slammed on you or getting yelled at on their front porch and learning how to kind of cool people down, handle objections. And as I started knocking doors as a wholesaler, I started, A, I was terrible at it for the first six to nine, 12 months. We were talking about this before the podcast about how there's so much training out there and information now uh, for podcasts. You can do any type of course. There's so much training out there. Back then, there was zero. It was very, very hard, right? Like we, there was no iPhones. It was, yeah. I feel like I'm dating myself really hard right now. But it was like <laughs> we had BlackBerry, Pearls, uh, Google Internet, and it was just like you didn't really know what you were doing in real estate. And so I started wholesaling because it was the best way to train myself, like how to identify what an opportunity was, how to uh, look at margins based on what the investors would tell me they would pay based on their rehab budgets, what kind of returns they were making. And then also what it did is it opened my eyes for how much money you could make in this business about, you know, I was watching these people buy these properties off us. I get paid like a three to $5,000 fee. They would come in and buy it, renovate it and sell it, make 40, 50, maybe a hundred grand on these properties. And I was looking how big it was. Um, and so as I progressed as a wholesaler, you know, and you know, I went from being terrible doing no deals in the first six to nine months to where I started kind of figuring it out with self-training and, you know, just not kind of giving up. I started putting together some deals, saving the money. And then I started buying my own flips because I wanted to get to that next, that kind of that next phase. Um, but I guess going back to your question, you know, I've always been a flipper and a wholesaler and I am today and I will always sell things because it has a really good purpose. That purpose is to grow your cash position, which is going to grow you as an investor. I don't have very many regrets in life about selling any property, even though they've all gone way up in value because each one of those homes had a purpose for me at the time. And it was to grow my cash. And by growing the cash is what has put me in a financially free position today. And so, yes, would I be more wealthy today if I would have kept some of those rentals? Probably. But actually, I don't. I, I that's an answer I can't even say because that cash I was able to grow it so fast over an eighteen year period that even if I would have kept him, it might have offset the appreciation. Um, and so I don't really get too much regret on selling properties. I mean, especially from coming from being a wholesaler. That's the whole the whole name of wholesaling is you're giving away an opportunity for people to make money on. So I I'm I'm pretty well ingrained that you're giving you're leaving money on the table when you wholesale or when you flip properties, you could keep them longer. But it's just a part of the business. Well, we were joking before the episode started that like, you know, you you just got into the podcasting ecosphere and talking about your business the way that you do now in the last few years. And everyone that we talked to that had started in 2005, 6, 7, 8, 9, whatever that is, 
they're the ones who are so much further ahead than everyone else. And you were doing the real work. Like you were on the ground. You were doing it without this system of training and, and videos and YouTube. So I find that really interesting that you're able to now share your story. And it's like talking with somebody like you who's done the amount of deal flow that you have, you have this accumulation of experience and it's just cool that you can now share it with everybody, even though you hadn't been doing it for so long. The sharing aspect, I mean. Yeah, yeah. The, the whole podcast world, you know, at the end of the day, I am a deal guy. Uh, uh, I'm addicted to the deal. I, you know, I, I, like our, our softball team's called Deal Junkies. We're a bunch of deal junkies in our office trying to get those things, you know, get the next deal done. And, you know, but as you kind of, you, when you start out and it's so new, like the, the amount of information that's out there right now is people can hang in there a lot easier like if, if you strike out you can go listen to a hundred great things you can go on bigger pockets you can go on you know the weekly juice you can learn the information and adapt back then it was like either sink or swim and so most of the people were sinking and it, it came down to work ethic and drive and so i you know i'm grateful to start during that time because you had to work your way out of the hole and, it, and if you could really train yourself on how to do that and just put your nose down and just get after it and not take no for an answer it really trained you. I mean, that's why I think I work so hard today is because it was just like, it was constant, uh, it was constant failures until it became success. And, and just by ingraining, now it's like people have it so easy, they, they, they can kind of bypass all that. But then, you know, it, it makes you take it off the gas. Yeah, I uh, I was going to say this is, it's funny that you mentioned it, like it's, what I want to talk about is basically you could take you out of the game right now and start from zero and you would, I know it, would be light years ahead of someone in three weeks or a month's time by just going through the motions of what you've already done. You know how to pick up the pieces. There's other people that if they took the media away, they took the all the podcasting, all that, they'd just be like, uh, they'd be caught with their pants down. They would have no idea what to do. So I think that's that basically is a testament to, I'm glad you brought up the failures, right? Like we've learned that over time. Like you just, everybody wants to get to that mountaintop and they want success, right? But it's all the things you've learned throughout the journey that would, that leads you to that success. You look back and like, dude, I wouldn't be who I am. You mentioned all these properties that you did that you did give up in your forego. Like, you don't have any regrets because those each of those were a stepping stone to where you got to today, right? Like, it's just a, a little lesson along the way. We've got burned a couple times, and for us, it it pisses you off, right? But you learn what not to do the next time, right? You vet people a different way, or you you look at a deal three different ways that you did the first time. We had a property that literally burned down to the ground. We're like, dude, we've been through some of the worst already. Like we figured we're figuring it out and you can't just talk about figuring it out. We've gone through the motions. Right. And I think about that all the time. Like we've kind of shifted gears over the last six months and have been more on our podcast grind, our, our um, I guess, uh, social media grind and like trying to build a business that way. But to me, I'm like, man, I'm like, we're, I think, are we missing out on some long-term portfolio lessons, right? We're doing, we try new things. So it's, it's interesting. There's just so many different things going on. You mentioned information overload. I think that is a benefit to some, but also a hindrance to others because you don't know what to do. Like you take all this information, like, okay, I can go left, right, up, down. You, you wake up six months down the line, you got four businesses running and you're like, dude, should I just do one? Like, I, I, I don't know where to go. So that was just a, a mouthful there. But, um, when I wanted to, that's, personal like Corey and I are going through this we're like whoa we need to like shave some things off we're like three masterminds we got like four businesses like dude maybe what do you have as a recommendation I know you're a wholesaler flipper like do these all tie into each other or do you kind of like streamline your business into one lane 
Yeah, so they, they all tie into each other, and that's the key to kind of scaling in this business. And I guess going back to why I don't have any regrets selling properties, a lot of that cash that we generated helped us start these other businesses that are all very passive for us, and we we do, you know, we do really well. And 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 you know, one thing that we learned, uh, you know, we, right now in the Pacific Northwest, we operate eight full time real estate businesses, and they all are somewhat integrated to where they work together. We have a wholesale company where we sell off market deals. We have a lending company that provides short-term financing, bridge loans, Washington State for hard money, whether it's fix and put burr, um, short-term capital. We have our brokerage that specializes in helping investors secure investments and then going through the system with to to get them. We teach investors on get to, how to get the highest and best use with the construction plans, whether it's through fix and flip and burr properties. And then we have our other service businesses, like a call room where we do professional calling for other uh, wholesalers out there and, and brokers to generate lead flow. And then we have our investment businesses, which is our fix and flip, our development, our syndicating business, and our property management company. And these are all companies that have been introduced over time. You know, we didn't start with them all. It started with, you know, it's all about the, the key to scaling real estate because that is the problem. There's so much information out there. And then each one of those categories all get their era of like, like short-term rentals was a huge era for a couple of years where everybody wanted to do short-term rentals. Now, when you talk to people about short-term rentals, not so much, right? There's, they, they get their little, their hot moments. And, you know, for us, what we, we've never chased the hot moments or the shiny things. It's just, what is the next logical step in our business? As wholesalers, we, we learned how to find a good deal, source it. Uh, get a good margin on it when you're you're day, buying a day one. Then from there, we became flippers because we knew how to get the deal. Then we had to you know perfect the the stabilization of the property. How do we make it highest and best use? That's construction. From there, we also needed funding for those deals, and so the, that's where the hard money aspect came in of funding it ourselves. So it's always been these logical steps over time, and they always complemented what we were we were existing doing we never kind of took that step before we mastered that and then went to the next step and i think that is the key and a lot of people get lost on that right now because there's so many avenues to make money in real estate i mean we do we have eight companies but that's we could still do a hundred more things it's about doing the things that work inside your existing systems james is, is part of the reason that you started those companies yourself as opposed to partnering with other people who have established businesses because you felt that there was a, a problem in a relationship or a problem in like, uh, this person isn't doing it the way that I feel like it should be done. I'm going to go start this company, like solving that need there. Because to me, I'm thinking like, that sounds like so much work, but it must be the system for you actually made it a lot easier to take it all in house. For example, property management. I'm sure there's other property managers that could do a good job, but is that for you it's not the way that you would have done it. And that's therefore you started the business because of that. Yeah. And it's also a scaling thing at that point. We used to use property managers when we had like 20, 30 doors. And then once you get to a certain amount of doors, the amount of cash flow that you can get off their property management fees, then you can actually use that, cut the expense in half by hiring staff and you can control that staff schedule. So you get more efficient you get more bang for your buck on dollars. You get to save money that way. But then, yes, we do get to control it. Because the problem with, you know, a lot of deals go bad in real estate, not because of the deal they bought. It's the third parties they have to deal with, whether it's a construction site and the contractor blows up. 
you hire the wrong property manager and they fill it with bad tenants and they're not paying or they're not filling it, they're taking too long to fill it. And so for us, we do like to eliminate those third parties because we want a system. If you have a full team focused on that rather than a bunch of different services for other individuals, you get you get better performance. And then once you get to a certain amount of scale, you're going to save money on that as well. Like when we started our hard money business interest funding, it was, you know, at the time, uh, 2008 and nine had just happened. So there was not a lot of lending out there. There was not a lot of hard money. And the and we wanted higher leverage because we had also had just gotten basically bankrupted in 2008. And so we needed more leverage. We were paying four points at 18% for that money at that point. You know, and for us, it was like, okay, after we got our track record of flipping properties, we wanted to start our own fund so we could reduce the cost, but also get easy funding because it's really hard to get a loan done. You know, a lot of these lenders wanted 30, 40% down because the market was so risky. And so it allowed us to be more efficient. And so it, it, I'd say it goes twofold. It's to save costs and to be scalable because the more money you can save, the more money. When you have multiple income streams, when you, you're tightening all those margins, it turns into real money. You know, even if you're saving... 2% across each one of those businesses, it can turn into big, big revenue at the end of the year. And Got so it. it's about saving revenue and controlling the the whole process. Right. And you mentioned earlier that you're like addicted to the deal, right? And I think that maybe is what separates you from some other investors out there and what has uh, allowed you to be successful. I'm curious, what do you think it is about you and your business and what you do that allows you to find the deals? And I asked this question selfishly and then also for our audience to so like, what can they implement to help them be better at deal finding? Is it ear to the ground? Is it the marketing strategy that like, just give us some insight as to what it is that you think separates you and it can help you with that deal flow. Well, the most important thing is knowing what you want to buy. And clarity, like we know what our purpose is and what we are trying to buy in the market. So we can go find deals and get very, very targeted because that is our sweet spot. And I think that's where a lot of investors get jammed up is they don't really know what they want to buy. And so they they struggle getting the perfect deal flow and then they get maybe too much or they're, they're spending too or they're telling people no too many times and then it kind of dries up. And so that is the first thing. Know what you want to buy and be able to execute on that. But the way we've, you know, the way that we've done really well in our in our lives is, and I'm a, and like going back to that whole deal junkie thing. I am a deal junkie. I get off about when people think that you can't do it, and then you come up with that magical equation of formula to do it. Like a lot of the properties we buy, crush, are on market. Anybody can buy this property, and they're passing on it because they didn't put that magical plan together. Or they didn't. They didn't. They thought the construction was going to be. They had a million and one reasons of why they didn't think that deal would work. We look for that one reason of why it does work, and then execute that plan. Um, because deal flow is essential in any market, and it depends on what, what what market cycle we're in. The last couple of years, off market was really good because the market was so hot on market. Now we buy way more on market than off market because the off market sellers still are kind of stuck on their old pricing that they want. And an on-market seller, if it needs work, the market's telling them if it's overpriced. And so we've actually bought probably 75% of our inventory has been on-market versus off-market this year. So it's about seeing what's available, pivoting your plan, and then putting that, you know, putting your time and energy for where it's, it's coming in. But you don't have to spend a lot of money for leads right now. They're right there on the market. That's awesome. I feel like a lot of people are, oh, no, I can't get anything on the market. I got to go off-market deals. Oh, it's too much for me. I'm just going to wait until... The, the market changes, right? Or the cycle changes for, for where real estate is. 
Can you talk about, I actually believe I heard this on another podcast. Can you talk about one of the the best deals you've ever found on market? Um, I think there was like a, almost like a million dollar gap that you had. Um, and maybe just talk oh, yeah. about the pivot there because I, I forget exactly where I heard it, but I want people to know like, it's not small dollars that you're always talking about. That's a pretty damn big deal. So uh, if you could enlighten us, that'd be great. This was a mega deal. It was it was an absolute ripper. Um, and this thing was, so there was a property that was located in Bellevue, Washington, in a, a better part, it was kind of West Bellevue. This would be our higher end neighborhoods where, you know, property sell, you know, it's anywhere between 5 million and 20 million. So very, very high end neighborhood. Yeah, big dog neighborhood. And there was a property that was listed on market for over a year and this property was rotting. And, and I had known this property very, very well because I actually had knocked on the door in 2008 on it and in 2010. It was one of those projects that were one of those fake builder, like basically it was like a fraudulent build in the 2006, seven, eight eras. There was a lot of straw buyers and weird stuff going on where a lot of fraud, where people were building homes, taking out way more money than they needed, you know, their pocket in the construction funds. Got it, and, got it, okay. And so this... I had been, I knew this property for years, and what had happened is it went through three different developers' hands. In the 2008, it went it got sold at the foreclosure auction. That developer worked on it for two years. Then they went bankrupt. They sold it off again, sold it off again, and the third guy was sitting there jammed, and they just had given up on it. So it was a property that was all the way down the studs. Um, it was a 6,800 square foot, basically mega mansion on a big lot. But and they but because of how when it originally started the design, it was like a it was like a Mediterranean that's out of style. It was in style two thousand eight, but by the time it was where we were at in two thousand twenty, it was just way out of date. And so this property was listed for three point nine million. No, no, uh, for three million dollars for I want to say a year. And we kept looking at the deal, and it wouldn't work. But when it first listed by any means, we would have needed that two million. But as the market was climbing, we kept recompetent, 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 and finally we go, okay, there's an opportunity here. But there was nobody that had listed this, and so, and we didn't get a great deal. It was listed at three million. The guy was being firm. We ended up paying like, yeah, I think he dropped it down to two eight nine, and then we ended up paying about two point seven four. So not a big discount for being on market for that long, but it was just all about the math. And, and so prior to going in, we knew it was a tough project. We had a bid out beforehand. We put in 1.2 into the construction. So again, a bigger dollar property, 1.2 into the renovation. We ripped out their old finishes. We put a new roof on, we scrapped their design, redesigned it. Um, now this is also when the market hit the accelerator. So we had the property, uh, perform it at 4995 because we, we had discounted it pretty far down just because of a couple of different locations and that we felt like the property was stale just from all the years of being marketed. Um, but when the market hit, the market hit. And the good thing about being in luxury markets or higher end neighborhoods, you know, when a property's values go up 20% and you're talking about a million dollars, that's 200 grand. And then you're talking about $5 million, that's a million dollars. And so when markets hit, they hit. And so this property in a nine, we were able to turn this property in nine months uh, because we had uh, negotiated that we got to close on reissue permits, got the, Permits reissued, nine months to finish. And in that nine month period, the property went from being worth five million to six and a half million. And so we ended up paying two seven, put one three into it and selling it for six and a half. Uh in a nine month two million dollars. I mean, my you know, all fees aside and all that stuff, but like the math is saying what two point seven, you you're all in for four and you sold it for six point five. 
Correct. And we did bring in a money partner on that one too. One of my old clients. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, cause we were in cash on that deal too. No ever cost. That's insane, uh, dude. Yeah. So that's now that's just a testament to like really, really knowing your market. And that that's kind of like the question that I have here. Is that why, and what I've heard about the strategies that you use is that you really only invest in I don't know if it's your backyard. It's not maybe not your backyard anymore, but it was like right, or where, right where you know. Is that still true today? Did you get to a point where you're scaling outside of that? But it sounds like the reason you're able to execute on that deal is because you know that market better or just as good as any real good investor would in that area. Is that true? Yeah, yeah I'm a true backyard investor. And, you know, uh, you know, I split my time between California and Seattle, but I still come up here every week. Every deal we do is in our Tri-County, Kingston, which Pierce County. We know the area as well. Uh, the good thing about wholesaling and door knocking back in 2006, 7, 8, 9 is we knocked a lot of streets, so we know them really, really well. And so by knowing our market, we're able to make a quick decision. We have a lot of resources here. And by really knowing knowing our market and being invested in the market, I'm, I'm an investor that doesn't believe that it's, you know, you, that old saying of the money's made on the buy, that's partially true. I think the money's made on the execution. What kind of plan can you put together and control that plan? By being in our backyard, we have all the resources, and so we can control those plans a lot more. Um, I don't do anything out of state unless I'm working with an operator that's from that backyard now. So I do do a lot more passive investing, uh, joint venture deals in other states like Arizona. Uh, I have some in uh, Arkansas. I've got a couple of deals I'm looking at in Atlanta right now, but it's more about the operator. And because I want those people to be specialists in that market too. I'm not someone that wants to go out and explore and set up shop in a new market unless I'm there. I like to be able to drive to the property and put my eyes on it and control the, the situation. I know Rai has a question uh, that he wants to go into, but it's it, inadvertently we're doing the same thing. And I'm glad to hear from somebody who's so much further along in his journey than we are that it's actually how we're executing these GP deals that we're doing too. Like the operators that we've chosen are either living at the living right next door to the projects, right? Or within a 30 mile drive of the projects. And we've kind of by osmosis, it wasn't a prerequisite for us, but it made us feel so much more comfortable to partner with people that were like, no, this is my backyard. Like I grew up here. I've lived here for 30 years that and, or, oh no, I'm moving <laughs> to the area of this project because cool. I see so much growth potential. And then we're like, okay, these people that we're partnering with are really ingrained in it. So there you yeah. Um, you mentioned, you kept saying we a lot and I, and I respect that. I know it takes a village for this stuff. And, um, you also mentioned being a deal junkie with all the guys and gals in your office. So I really want to talk about this. Scaling a business takes multiple people, right? So a lot of people will get out of like, hey, maybe I have just one partner and I need, I start building a business. And my question really is like, how would you recommend people go about building a team? And can you talk to maybe some of your experiences through hiring and firing and, and like building the tight knit group around you to go and attack these deals? Not just buying, right? Right. You mentioned like executing properly and it takes a specific team to do it a specific way. So um, I know we could probably go for a very long time on that topic, but just top level and like how you've kind of run your ship would be awesome. Yeah. Well, first thing is I have a, I have a really good partner that I've trusted. Uh, his name is Will Heaton. We've been business partners now for 18 years. Um, one thing that I think we do really well is we're divide and conquer guys. He does like we we truly believe too many cooks in the kitchen is a bad thing. Um, and so we have out of our eight businesses, it's really split four and four. I have my set, he has his set and we're there to help each other, but we, we give free autonomy of to run it however, which way you want to run it. 
uh, and if whether it's good or bad, we trust each other. Like, you know, it's um, and so that helps a lot because that allows us to scale more because we can stay focused. If I was focused on all eight, I'm going to get spread out too much and I'm going to become very inefficient. The other thing that has worked out really well for us and we've grown from, you know, when we first started our business on our own in 2008, because we, we originally opened up shop the month before subprime mortgages blew up. So not a great time to be putting all your money into real estate. Um, but we only had three employees at the time. And then the rest were all salespeople. Now we're up to about 85 employees. And so Whoa. we've grown through all the businesses. Um, and, and one thing about being a business owner, having that many employees, can it's a great thing, but it also can be a lot of headaches. It's, you you got to deal with a lot of different personalities, a lot of different fires, a lot of things going on. But one thing I have learned is the longer they're there and the better people that you find, the easier life gets. And so we really value our employees as far as investing, not just payroll to them and, and giving them money, but growing them as individuals. Our average employee has worked for us, like at our brokerage, for example, our average person has been there for eight years or more. They don't, they don't leave. And it's because we support their own goals, whether it's buying their own house and helping them put up the money for the house, getting it renovated. They want to start flipping, teaching them how to do that, giving them access to more capital. If they want to buy rental properties, we, you know, so we help them grow as not just employees, but as people. And if you invest in them as people, they're going to be with you for a long time and and they're talented, they know what's going on, and then they can help run your business a lot more. So, you know, I think the two things are find the right partners and don't pick on any partner because I've had bad ones too in the past, or I wouldn't say bad ones, partnerships that didn't work out. Um, And invest in your people to where you're growing together. The more you grow together, it's more of a family than a, a business. That's thank you. I have I have two on this. I think it's a very important topic because there's a lot of people in there that are like starting whether they're starting out or they maybe have 10, 15 units. They're like, dude, I need to I need to really scale. I need to like maybe I hire out, maybe I get another partner. So they're everyone's always looking, right? We talk about like vetting different people. So this is a more personal one. We'll lay it on the line for you. But it's like Corey and I are, you know, we do 50-50 on most things. And we're now we're getting to the point where we have multiple businesses. And so we're trying to get to the point where it's not one person. I feel like we've kind of spread ourselves thin a little bit, right? Like if I have my hands in all of them, all of the projects, it, but just a little bit in each, right? And so does he, then it's like, okay, like we're both doing a little bit here and there and you're just kind of like always in the weeds. So can you maybe talk to the point of like how you guys decided to break off and like, here's your four, here's your four and just take it and run with it. Like we trust each other. We get where we need to get, I think a little bit. And we talked about this recently about better about dividing and conquering because we've already been leaps and bounds from where we thought we were, but we can tend to both be visionary in a way where, and, and I personally, I'm just like, I've gotten to a point where I understand that I, we both can't be visionary. So I'll just, I've started doing more of the integrator type stuff and, and he has too, but I know it's, it's more of a, a heavy weight on the shoulder. So I'm trying to find a way to, to optimize our skill sets a little bit more. And you're not, there's no, he said this to me today. It was actually great. It's like, dude, you're, I'm a perfectionist, so bear with me there. But like, it's very hard to find someone that's going to run things exactly the way you want them done. And and you've seemed to find a way to trust your partner to go do the things. And I do trust Corey. It's like, but it's, you always want to have a little touch in something. And I know you can't. So just looking for some advice based on all that. And, you know, maybe how he and I can optimize a little bit better. Yeah. So how we kind of broke it, it's, it's, it's a constantly an evolution. So there's actually been businesses that we've swapped too. 
where okay. he was running one of them. Um, you know, and so basically how we haven't divided those, I'm more the forward facing sales. I do the sales. I'm working with the clients. I'm more out and about because that's also just my personality. We looked at what our strengths and weaknesses are. Uh, I'm one of those people that can be with clients all day, talk to them all day, and it doesn't really drain me down. You know, I can I can sit there at a conference and talk to people for 10 hours. I enjoy teaching. I enjoy training. And I also just enjoy getting a deal done, which is really helpful for my sales team. And so I'm more, you know, general sales working with the team. Will does a lot more of like the bigger process stuff where he can just meet with the team. He's more introverted that way where he wants to just work with the team and get things done. So he does like our large syndication renovations. He does our development projects. Uh, our lending business because it's a little bit less forward facing the consumer. I'm more towards the consumer because that's just my strength. And then I also do the fix and flip projects as well. And so based on our strength and weaknesses, we've done the divide and conquer. And then the key is you just have to trust that person and let them do what they need to do. And, you know, we still meet every month and go through our reporting of where it's at, what's working, what's not working, and then giving feedback to each other on what we would do differently. But then we let them do those things. And, and no matter what, you know, cause we've learned in this business over 18 years, we've seen it go up and down, up and down, up and down. Sometimes my businesses or my side of the businesses are ripping. Sometimes his are ripping. Sometimes they're both hitting at the same time, which is the greatest, the great, but we never, I've never thought like, oh, you're doing a bad job because they're, right. they're pivoting. So, you know, we don't have any of that mindset, which is a big deal. You support each other, you trust each other. And as long as there's that established trust, you know, they're making the right decisions. And it's not always going to work out because this is investing. It's not always going to hit home runs. And so by having that attitude, we can just grow and, and do what we need to do to, to scale out. One of the questions I have for you, James, is, is like, just getting to know you a little bit briefly in the time that we have. Like, it looks like you're in really good shape. It looks like you have a bet. From the outside looking in, it looks like you have balance. And and I'm curious on how you're able to do that, right? Like a lot of people come home from a nine to five. This might be a gr the grinding mentality, right? And they're like drained. And like, how do I can't even, the, the one job is just, is, is just, is draining me. But you're running eight businesses. I know, I realize they all tie into each other. But how do you structure your day where you're able to, find time to enjoy your life and and do all the things that are important to you and 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 is there a certain maybe strategy that you've implemented or just way of life that you've adapted to that has allowed you to find balance and do the things that you like as well as grow your businesses yeah balance is a tough thing for me uh because i i i i'm a, like i said i'm addicted to the deal so i i i love work um which can maybe be... you just put on a front and you're actually not that balanced <laughs> <laughs> i was i'm one of those people that was like if you have to get it done you just get it done like going to the gym that is actually something that makes me feel good it makes me have brain clarity i if i go to the gym in the morning i will be more efficient throughout the day i just feel better um and so but it's all about scheduling that time in like i know i'm getting to the gym at like 7 30 in the morning i don't go to i don't go too too early i'm not one of the 5 a.m guys even though i might try that in the next 12 months we'll see i'm, I'm a more of i work till 1 a.m so i don't really like to wake up at at five Got it. Um, yep. but but um it's just about you know i'm one of those people, this is, if you got to get it done, you got to get it done. And so I do schedule it in. I make sure I prioritize those times. Uh, things I do, you know, luckily I have a very understanding family too, but it's about balancing that time. I'm one of those real estate professionals that doesn't really work on weekends. 
It is shutdown time. Um, I will look at deal flow because I need to throughout the weekend, but it's there, I'm not going to be doing open houses. I'm not taking a bunch of calls. Um, and so it's really about blocking those times out. Um, my business partner always jokes around, you know, I moved down to SoCal part-time and I commute every week, right? So I fly out Monday through Wednesday and then Thursday, Friday, I kind of take it a little bit more easy and do like scheduled Zoom call meetings with my team. But when I'm in town, I'll get to my office at eight and I don't leave until 11 at night. I just work and get it done, and which gives me a lot more time. But he always jokes, he's like, you needed a state in between you to balance yourself out. Uh, because got it. a just, town wasn't enough. You needed a full state line. <laughs> I need a full, I need Oregon in between me to slow me down. But um, I would say that's something I struggle with, you know. And I think entrepreneurs have that. That I think they're the entrepreneurs that don't want to do anything and they want to delegate everything out. And then there's a quarterback entrepreneurs that want to be on the field all the time. I'm definitely one that wants to be on the field. Um, but it, it is a struggle. Balance is, is, is a tough thing. Um, it is something you got to constantly work on, but scheduling and sticking to the schedule has been, you know, it's just those simple steps go a long, long way. Well, I appreciate you saying that too, because you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of, and this is how I know that you're not a, you're not like the marketing guy that like, and you were doing the work too, because there's, there's people that have come on podcasts and they're so polished and they're so like, like it makes it seem like everything is the exact way that they want it to be all the time. And you're just telling me straight up. You're like, well, I, no, I struggle with that. Like that's not perfect in my life. Right. And I think that's, that's important because the real information of like, no, to get where, to where you are, like to work that eight to 11, like that's. That's kind of what it is, man, even at this stage, right? So it, I like that people are able to listen into that, an insight of somebody who's been doing this for 20 years, that it's it's not like it is all perfect and you have this, you're working, you know, at this point you're working four hours a day. Like that's not how this works. So I, I appreciate you bringing that up. Yeah, and I think a lot of people, though, you get to the point where, let's just call it like where James is, you – can retire right but you won't because you have this skill set now and you have this wherewithal and this inner drive to even get you to where you were that you're just like it's so hard to shut it down like you're just like why would i you know and i'm good at this i have fun i love chasing the deals there's a lot of different things so for me i think i might be more so i really like the analogy they said there, like the quarterback um type entrepreneur like for me i like being in the weeds like not not in the weeds but i i like to have the control to be able to, to put some creative flair on it and be in like see it un unveil from the things that i have done hiring out is daunting to me i think to Corey too it's like it's great it sounds awesome to have like some of your freedoms back but to go through the, all the motions of actually writing out or maybe doing a loom video on exactly how we want it done and then still knowing that they're probably going to mess it up in some type of way is annoying to me and like i've we've had some experience we've done some vas from overseas um and just people in general maybe VAs in the states like here's how we like doing it and xyz follow this and it'll still like won't do it the right way and it, it takes to motivate them and right there's a whole different thing to that like to train the team and right to keep people like you've clearly done for eight years as your average time to keep someone that's amazing they feel valued and they're you're helping their lives it's not easy you're and i don't want to like dumb it down and say babysitting but like in my w2 i've gone from we both work in sales and so we've managed a sales team and then we've also been the headhunters right and i've just found personally i like being a headhunter maybe i'm a deal junkie i just like getting after it and the thrill of the chase is sick to me like i just love it and i found that i'm not the best at 
managing others. Like, I'm like, nah, dude, this is how I do it. Fuck it. Let's go. Like, I just want to, I want to rip and grind and not everybody's like that. And so I personally struggle with that and it takes a certain person and team to be able to do it. So I just appreciate you bringing that up. Cause it's, it's hard to, you got to realize who you are. Right. And like, in, mm. in like talk about it because then you know how you can, I guess, like map out the future and, and attack it. So it was more of a, a selfish thing for Corey and I. I'm trying to like help navigate. I feel like I've been a little bit overbearing recently and I, I I'm apologizing yes, to my, to my yes, guy. Yeah. Uh, it's just, I, we're, we're on a path and I feel this big yep. momentum ball and I don't want to, I don't want to let it pass us by. Maybe also I'm, I'm being a hard because I'm a new dad. So like I see this little thing that I got to take care of forever now. And I'm like, dude, I'm just, we got to get after it. Like, that's what, what are we doing today? Let's go. So uh, thanks for being so candid with all, all that. Yeah. Well, and one thing that, you know, I think and not everyone's going to agree with this and probably some people are going to hate on this a little bit, but it's, I, I truly believe balance is earned. When, who says that you're not supposed to, like America's hard. The great thing about America is you can make whatever you want, but you got to earn it. And so for us, it was about putting in those hours up front. Now I'm balancing out more. I've earned that financial freedom. I've gotten to that spot to where now I can balance down and it comes down to the balance now is more about me just doing things differently and investing in people rather than just projects and scaling that way. Because it frees up time. You give up money, but you've already earned the money that you needed. And so if you, you know, I think a lot, especially in the land of influencers now, everyone's about financial freedom. Well, oh no, you need balance. You need to work. And those are all things that, yes, you definitely need. Everyone needs that in their life, but you need to earn it. And now I feel like no one wants to get after the hard work in the beginning. They just expect it. Mm, And, you know, forget that. Go get it and then get the balance and perfect it out. Yeah. yeah, and I think a part of that, James, is the uh, – sometimes I look at it, it's like not even the fault of the generation. Even the fringe of the – I'm a millennial, like that generation, but Gen Z is like you turn on your phone and you, you you see somebody that looks like they're crushing it, looks like they're killing it. There's instant gratification that feels like it. this can happen. You can be financially free within one year, and it's like – I, I think it is the wrong messaging. I think it'll screw some people up, and I think that is why there is a, maybe an anxiety-ridden or depression is more of like this thing that's in the in the in the air because you grew up in an area in a, in a time of, of life where you didn't have all of this on your phone, looking at like the next big entrepreneur who might be having everything fake on credit cards anyway. But it looks like they just scaled their business to ten million in the the last five minutes, and you're like, what the fuck, like how? How did they do that? I want to be like that. I got to be like that. And I think I can just tell you fell in love with the grind. Like, cause you don't, you wouldn't be working this hard or doing what you do if you didn't absolutely love what you're doing. You wouldn't work eight to 11. You don't have to work eight to 11, but you love it. And I think that the more people can fall in love with that, what is the thing that you really enjoy doing? Now, you don't have to work eight to 11, like, but your business might take a hit based on that. So I know it a, lo- a lot of topics covered there. But my point is, is that I think that process, that process driven, that process oriented is, is really what will ultimately lead to your success as a business owner or entrepreneur. Yeah. Put, put in the work. Yeah. yeah. It, this is not, it's not, it's not, it's not given to you. Yep. Yeah. One last one in the, in the yeah. Lego. So it's, it's based on the work. There's a lot of, um, what I think is lacking on, on let's call it on social media, right? And like you you talked about this or touched on is like you just see the end result, right? You never see the the journey in the day-to-day. You could see all the clips people put out. You see the podcast episodes we talk. But like yeah. once these are done, it's like, dude, you got to take the information you learned, whether it's on a podcast, on YouTube, or it's reading, and put it into action and try it. What I've learned is 
that we've both learned this is the last couple of years, like we've, we've established something, but you need to have the system ironed out in the back end for things to absolutely flourish. Like, so you can get more of a plug and play. Right. So I'm thinking like specifically when it comes to um, like funding deals, right. Or uh, like a website or getting people in your, on your email list or building a brand. There's so many things out there other that you need to take into consideration that aren't just a, Hey, let's just like record a video and throw it out. There's so many different avenues you got to think about. So for us, that's our, like one of our big goals is not really goals, but like tactics that we're working on right now is like really streamlining and sharpening our, our systems, because those are what we found is like, you can get caught with your pants down and you're like, Oh dude, like shit. Like I just didn't have that. And you, someone's like, how do you do X, Y, Z? You're like, I don't know. We just figured it out. So Maybe it's another way to like e work smarter, not harder, right? Or, or you can always work hard, but weaving in technology and the things that we've been talking about that like use social media to your advantage, but there's also automations to your advantage. There's like AI and a lot of cool things out there now that you can use to tweak and it can be a version of you. So I'm just putting that out there because I found that a lot of people talk the talk, but they really can't walk the walk. And when they get asked, like, how do they actually do something? They really can't explain it. They say, oh, I pawned it off to someone else. And I think the guys like you who can explain step-by-step step how we did it and you could throw them into a system, they just, those are the guys that we want to be surrounded with because you, you're the real deal. So we've seen some phonies out there. Yeah, we have. So as we wind down the show here, I, I probably should have asked this question earlier, James, but can you just give us a, a scope of what your portfolio looks like now? And the reason why I asked the question is because I want to know what the next maybe one to three years looks like for you. What area of your business you're focused on and 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 scaling, and maybe it's all of them, but what does your portfolio look like? Are you more focused on the the flipping, the rentals, the the lending? What's your vision for the next couple of years? So we, we, we change our vision with whatever's going on in the market, you know, because the thing is you can make that plan, but at certain times, certain asset classes do a lot better. Um, for example, right now, uh, flipping versus developing. We're actually focusing more on developing because of just the labor market that's going on right now. Uh, you know, costs went through the roof, but as costs have slowed down, we've noticed that it's actually way more efficient. The pricey, the, the, the development costs have dropped a lot quicker than the fix and flip costs because it's who you're hiring, right? Uh, they're they're more educated. They understand pricing, whereas they fix and flip maybe not quite as much. So there's less issues. So we are focusing on more of that right now because that's just where the gap is. Um, but as we kind of like start to focus on what we're trying to grow and scale, my biggest passion really is scaling my passive income business, right? Because as I'm trying to balance out finally, um, you know, letting other people do the work and, you know, putting in that work, we've saved up quite a bit of capital and that's the money that you want to grow at that point. Um, and so I take a lot of my own personal cash and I put it into hard money loans. I put it into uh, joint venture deals, equity lender deals, and that's just my own cash. Now our business cash goes to different purposes. Um, so right now I'd say we like on our investment standpoint, we probably have 20% in fix and flip. We probably have 35% of our cash in development, or I'd say 45% in development. Uh, another 25% in lending, and then another 25% in growing our portfolio. Um, right now, we have nearly a thousand doors in the Pacific Northwest. Um, we originally started in two, after we had to restart in 2008, we acquired about 11 single family and then started 1031 exchanging those on repeat. We're never people that hold on to property just to hang on to it. I don't care what the cash flow position is, if there's equity there. I'm going to look at that return on equity. I'm going to trade it for more doors in a better position. So we're constantly refilling that up. 
Um, but typically on average on our, the units we buy, we're buying 70% of them are with syndications, larger projects. And then we're always buying in 30% just individually owned smaller units that are going to be like 10 units and around that count. So it's always growing that. Got it. I'm curious if you're willing to share, what is that return on equity number that it drops underneath that you feel like, okay, this is no longer a, a number that I'm comfortable with. I want to trade up. And I'll get a caveat. The reason why I'm asking the question is because every uh, two multifamily syndicators told me, and this is when I was just getting started, they're like, look, you bought your first duplex like a few years ago. And it's like, it's giving you $200 a month in cash flow, but there's 150 thousand in equity sitting there. It's like, what do you, why hold on to it? And I'm like, well, the reason I hold on to it is because I want a bigger door count. It's like, what the hell does that mean? Like, why do you want a door count? Like you just, because you think that that's the way to success. When in reality, I was able to turn that $200,000 property into a $500,000 property in a way nicer area that's cash flowing more. Right. So just as an, as an example. So I asked the question, like, what's that number of return on equity that you're like, nope, trade up time. Yeah, and that's a. It, it depends on what the asset is because there is some things that it, if they have extra kickers in there, I don't use the return on equity as much. And the kicker would be like, I like to buy if I'm buying. I still buy small rental properties today. You know, I think that's a huge mistake when people start growing and they're like, I'm only buying apartments now. I'm big time, which yes, it's more efficient. We like to buy large apartment buildings too, but those little deals have a lot of impact if you're buying the right ones with zoning. So I'm always targeting ones with have zoning upside. Then that, I don't look at return on equity as much because I'm more timing the market going, okay, this thing is maxing out. It's time to sell it off. Um, there, there's a bunch of development sites that we had bought over the years, kept as rentals that we 1031 exchanged out because the dirt went through the roof over the last couple of years. And then there were some that we felt like had a lot more growth that would be a bad return on equity, but we think there's a huge X factor in the deal. Um, but typically I'm going, I, you know, I'm a person that looks for 10% cash flow. I want 10% cash flow on a deal. And, you know, for me, I will sacrifice my 10% cash flow if I'm buying a large equity position. So then I can 1031 it out and then get into that 10%. And so I run my return on equity. If it's lower than 8%, I'm going to most likely trade it out. But it's more than just running that cat that that return on equity position. It's what can you trade it into at that point? Because the key to scaling your doors is not being complacent. I'm never complacent with what I have. Once it gets that giant equity position, I'm going to 1031 exchange that. And I'm not just going to 1031 exchange it for better cash flow. I'm going to go for a better equity position and get another value add and then increase that equity by 2x again. And as long as I keep doing that, that's where you can get to the large, large unit counts because it's just a domino effect from there. At some point, we will take all our thousand doors that are scattered throughout Seattle, which is inefficient to, to manage. And once we want to start unwinding it down, we're going to 1031 all those into one big giant site. So it's efficient, it's financially free, and we can then kind of take it off the gas. But until we're there, we're always going to be trading out. But for me, 8% is kind of the number because I know I can get 8 to 10%. If not, I can at least pick up a huge equity position that will kill the 10% anyways. Got it. Okay. Is there a, a um, you mentioned you're just getting to the stage where you're balancing out. Is there a, is there a point in your future where you're like, hey, I want to liquidate or do you think you'll do this for the next 15, 20 years? Like, is there a, is there a, a goal in that sense or is it more so just growing it until you'll, maybe you'll know it when you hit it? 
Um, you know, I, I will never liquidate out of all my holdings. I will sell them and reposition them. But I once where they go into the holding bucket, I don't try to take that cash back. It, it, that is the purpose of the long term. Because one thing, yes, we're buying sellers, right? We flicks and flip, we develop, we wholesale. But the wealth is made on keeping them. And the, the only reason I do the fix and flip in the development is so I don't have to sell those businesses or sell those assets because I have that income coming in. It gives me more cash to go reload up. Um, mm -hmm. But at some point, yeah, when I want to get down to, you know, I'm thinking the goal is in about 10 years. It, but it, I work backwards on my goals. My goals is I want a certain amount of cash flow every month for me to go, okay, I can really go part-time passive at this point. You know, in and for me, I know what that number of return is. And if I'm trying to make 10% of my money, I know how much money I have to save at that point. So I'm going to keep trading and chasing until I get to that giant equity piece. Good. Then I can move over to 10% return. So I got to get the equity, you know, for, so let's say you're trying to make, you know, 10,000 bucks a month, 10% return. You need to have a million bucks in the bank. You know, if you want to make, you know, hundred grand a month, you got to have quite a bit of money in there. And so, you know, at that point, until I get to that number, I'm not going to be selling off. But, you know, we, we made a pretty good dent. So I'm still pushing forward. And the good thing is, once you start making money, if you make the right, well, it starts going faster. And yep, you, it's a snowball you know, effect. And that's, again, why don't be afraid of hard work. Get it going. Then it grows a lot faster down the road. Cool. So um, as we wind down the show, there's a couple questions we like to ask at the end. I want to at least do two of these ones. Um James, let's say that you, well, first question is all this work, all this, you know, I'm curious about your why, like what really gets you up out of bed every morning, you get to the gym, you're working eight to faint, you're, you're doing all this, you're growing it. You must love it. I know that, but is there an overarching why that drives you forward? Well, I mean, I think one that's very simple is I'm just hyper competitive. I want to win. I don't know what it is. No matter what I'm doing, I want to win. Uh, and I've always been that way. But I mean, the why now is like, you know, and I, I know you, you said you just had a little one, like the kids are what the why, right? Like it's, I have an eight, 10 year old, uh, I have a 10 year old boy, eight year old daughter. Uh, my wife is absolutely precious. It's all about the, when you start growing your family, it's all about the family. Um, and you know, I, what I do want to do, and that's why I'm trying to balance out more as they get older and it goes a lot faster than you, I, I, I realized, you know, I want to enjoy those last bit of years. So that's the beautiful thing about real estate. If you position yourself, right, that passive income can really to where you can get really enjoyable life. And I can give them something when they were, you know, when they're leaving. And like for me, I didn't get anything. I had to work my way. I went from Red Robin, get my degree, built it myself. And so, you know, uh, I would say that they are definitely my why. And I'm just hyper. I, I really like winning. Dude, I, I am uh, both of those things. So we, we relate, <laughs> dude. And it's uh, not just the tattoos. Um, I will say I love that answer. And uh, more recently, I've, I've found that as to, to be my why, right? There's It's just a different feeling. And I, I can't even explain it out loud. So very cool. Um, Last question for me. Um, if you could go back to let's call it, let's call it 17, 18 year old James, pending he would listen to you, knowing what you know now about the market, the world, yourself, what's one piece of advice you would give him on how to navigate his future? Um, I would say, you know, let's say 18 year old James getting into real estate is don't get, you know, don't have one big mistake I made was putting blinders on to where I was only focused on what I was doing, not looking at everything as a whole 
um, you know, because you can have success and once something starts working, you get really hyper-focused on it, right? Which you should. And then, you know, don't just systemize it. And, you know, don't just systemize it. Look at all the other pieces that you can put together. But, you know, one thing that I did not do for the first four years of my career is I didn't really look at growing outside of what I was doing. It was all about I'm, what I'm doing well and I want to win in this category. But if I would have really looked at the big picture and the whole, the whole map out there, I could have grown substantially faster. Um, and then the other thing is, I would I would tell James is, uh, it's not all about hard work. Work a little smarter because I think I could have in life I could have maybe repositioned how I did things and been even better than I am today and paid substantially less taxes and worked smarter. Cool. So James, it's been a pleasure. I know that you know it's it's super evident from the work that you've put in and just the way you articulate that you're you're really advanced and I, people might want to learn from you. I'm sure they do want to learn from you. I know you have some programs that, you know, you have some like investor 101 and, and getting people into real estate. What's the best way for one people to get in touch with you if they, if they'd like to, but also can you talk about some of that, that coaching that either you or, I don't know if it's directly with you or your team does to help others along in this journey. Yeah. I mean, the best way to find me is probably on Instagram at jdaneflips or at jamesdaner.com. Um, but yeah, we do a ton of free educational stuff for investors. So we, we do that because in 2008, when the market crashed and we were running a brokerage, you couldn't get anybody to buy stuff. So we really had to handhold people. So they felt good about real estate. And so for the last 18 years, we've always given away so much service and free knowledge. It's just a part of what we do. Um, and so, you know, you could, you know, go to those sites, we give out tons of different free free training, free webinars, market updates. Uh, the Investor 101 is really for local investors that we teach about the different types of assets and how to kind of revenize those locally. Uh, Project Flipper Education Company does a lot of different in-depth training on stuff that we've only done for longer than 10 years. So we're not like popping up, selling the next hot item. We're teaching stuff that we know, we lived it, we breathe it, and we do it today. Um, and, and I do that. I'm very passionate about that. No one should be educated unless they have, they know it, know it. And so, you know, if we haven't been doing it for 10 years, if we haven't lost money and made money doing it, we're not going to be teaching it. Uh, yeah. You don't want to forget about that losing money part. Cause he can tell people what not to do. So very cool. James, it's been a, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate your time. And I think people are going to love this episode. So thanks again. No, thanks for having me on. This is a good, fun conversation. Thanks for tuning in this week to the Weekly Juice Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, subscribe, and share with friends. The more ratings we get, the more ears we'll get on our show. And in turn, we'll be able to provide you with more high-quality guests. You can also find us on Instagram at Weekly Juice Pod, where we post daily tips and tricks and document our own journey towards financial freedom. Make sure to tune in every Wednesday to get your weekly juice.